Let me invite you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Corinthian congregation uh, was divided over both the message and the messengers. The, the tensions at Corinth, uh, schisms that were there uh, in the report that Paul received from, from uh, folks that had had contact with Corinth uh, were, were pretty deep, deep ones, deep uh, over the, the very framing of the gospel. Should the gospel of Jesus Christ be accommodated to the culture within which uh, the church lives? That's really the issue. Do we craft the way in which we speak about the gospel in terms of the culture around us or, or in terms of the cross and what Christ has done there? And so Paul's addressed that in the first two chapters and really tried to zero in on the fact that there cannot be any accommodation of that because it is actually the wisdom of God and the power of God. If you, if you surrender the very thing which is the effective power of producing the work, uh, you have, you have committed a, a terrible act of foolishness, right? It's, it's like deciding that the, you know, the, the drill works better not plugged in. I mean, I can't, I can't drill on this side of the room unless I unplug it. So I'm going to unplug it and go drill over there. And it's like, hello, you've just disconnected it from the power. It's not going to do anything of eternal significance in that way. And so Paul uh, has challenged them very deeply and directly on that. But also there was a division over the messengers. They, they were uh, divided by strife and jealousy. And the way that it shown up by was, was the kind of thing we'd call cliques or, or divisions rallying around the ostensible leader of their mindset. And I say ostensible because it's, it's just not true. Paul is going to say, Apollos and I are one. Right? We, you're, you're arguing like there's a division among us and there is no division among us. So they were using these men's names to advance their own agenda, right? And I mean, all of us know that. I mean, how many times have you have heard lots of people are saying, right? Because someone wants to sort of add some heft to their statement, right? They're going to they're gonna throw it into a bigger audience, so to speak, right? And and basically, that's what, what's going on here. And Paul has begun to address that by talking about the workers themselves, that the focus is not on the workers, but it's actually on the master. God's, God's workers are simply servants who are accountable to God for the assignment they were given. Right? That's, that's what they are. They're servants. They're accountable to God for their own assignment. That's, that's the key. Paul is doing the thing that Paul was commissioned to do. Apollos is doing the thing that Apollos was given to do. It's, it's about the master. It's not about them. Because we are all servants of the living Lord. And the one who should receive the glory and the one who has the right, if I could put it this way, to call the shots is actually the master. We are not given the authority or responsibility to call the shots. We're servants. The master says what is supposed to be done. The master dictates the nature of the work and the responsibilities that each person has in it. And, and we have to have that mindset deeply in. So Paul's addressed the workers. Now in chapter three, he turns to the work itself. I'd like to read verses 10 through 15 this morning. First Corinthians chapter three, verses 10 through 15. 
according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is a passage of scripture that I think is profound and sometimes uh, disconnected from uh, really the context uh, and the focal point of it, because Paul is talking about work in the context that he has been describing of God's work at Corinth. And I think it's important for us to get that and not just sort of pick this up and and wield it in any direction we want to. So we need to work out from the the focus of what Paul's been talking about. Verse 10, if I could just put it this way, is is really about the reality of ministry. What what is it, right, that that is is at stake in this? And and he packs some words in there, and I'm just going to try and unpack them really quick, all right? The reality of ministry is it is grace-based. Notice says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. So it is something given, not earned, right? There was grace given to Paul to do this. It wasn't something that Paul earned or had a right to or somehow merited. It was actually God's gracious gift to Paul that is both, I think, the responsibility and the ability for it, right? The the opportunity of ministry is grace. We're owed nothing, right? I mean, we, and that's, I mean, that's wrapped up in the, in the reality of being servants, right? We, we, we are, we are owed nothing from God in terms of our privilege of serving him. It is a work of his grace to give us anything to do for him. Right? Remember, think about the prodigal son for a moment. When he, when he came to his senses, he said, you know what? I'm not worthy to be his son, but I will go back and I will be just one of his workers. Perhaps he'll let me. I mean, he was hoping he would just be able to allow, be allowed back on the farm. Right? But sometimes we turn around and we're like, hey, you know, I want that. We're, we're, reaching up for some more exalted position or more place of influence or whatever, when we we just need to realize, I mean, God's been so gracious just to give us an opportunity to serve him. Right? That, that we actually have been given grace, not just the opportunity and responsibility, but also the ability to do it. The gifts are called grace gifts. If you have something which can be used for the Lord, it is not, or it does not originate with you. It's come to you from God and it's an opportunity to be used to advance his work. I mean, that's, that's, that's the nature of the work. It is, it is grace based. It's, it's something that comes from God as a gift to his people. And that means it's a stewardship, not an ownership. It's, it's, it's something I've been entrusted with and I need to be a good steward or manager of it. I'm not the owner of it, right? I, I can't just say, hey, I'm gonna take my abilities and go to the South Beach or whatever, right? I, I actually, that's a LeBron James illusion for any of you that are aware of that, right? So it's not, I'm not the owner. I do what the, I'm supposed to do what the Lord wants me to do it with a sense that this is the place and and privilege I've been given because it's his work, right? It's his work. He calls the shots, not us. It's grace-based. 
But also notice he says in the words, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. It, it must be wisdom directed, if I could put it this way. And, and I think there's more to this statement than we might immediately think of. Because think of how many times in chapters one and two, Paul has talked about wisdom. Right? He's talked about God's wisdom and wisdom among the mature and the wisdom that's been revealed from God in contrast to man's wisdom. And so now he just sort of subtly slides it in there, right? That I have been a wise master builder. That is, I have been doing the thing God wants to be done according to his wisdom. The thing that's controlled my understanding of ministry is that it must be directed by the wisdom of God, Paul's saying. So he's tying it back in really to the whole discussion that he's had up to this point to show that it's not just a theoretical conversation, right? We have a conversation about the cross and Paul goes, no, no, the, you can't do the wisdom of men. You have to do the wisdom of God. And I didn't come to you in the wisdom of men, but in the wisdom of God. And I speak wisdom among the mature. And he's, he's having this whole conversation and it would be terribly unwise. I don't, I didn't mean to make the pun there, but to go, okay, he's finished the theoretical discussion, theoretical discussion. Now let's talk ministry, <laughs> right? We're done with all that. Let's get to where the rubber meets the road. Let's talk about the practical side of it. For Paul, this is the practical ramification. Right? The, the wisdom of God revealed in the cross, given to us in the scriptures, is supposed to be the way in which we go about doing his work. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And, and so what we have to remember when we're talking about ministry, the reality of it is, is that the word of God must have active and functional control over everything that we do. We can't go, oh, hey, we got our theology right. Let's just get down to our practice now. Years ago, there was a guy whose whole ministry sort of imploded, who, who almost convinced a whole generation of younger guys in ministry, oh, we hold our, our theology tightly in our right hand, but our methodology loosely in our left hand. As if those could be in two separate hands. That your methodology has no theological implications to it. That, that your theology has no methodological implications to it. Maybe like saying, okay, I've understood all the theory about marriage, but now I'm going to go do marriage. As if you could study all that the Bible says about marriage and then practically go about being married without having that functionally controlling every choice you're making in marriage. Or you can't separate the two. Or it's impossible. They're supposed to be joined together so that as the church of Christ carries out the work given to it by Jesus, it is following his instructions, right? He has provided the blueprint for the construction project and we're supposed to follow it. So Paul says like a wise master builder. And then notice he says, I laid a foundation. And this is, I believe, helping us see that this passage is church focused what he's talking about. And, and that, that's the carryover from last week's passage. Just look, look in verse nine again. Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So the you there, as I said last week, is second person plural. So he is talking to the whole church at Corinth. He's not talking to an individual there. You're the field, you're the building. He's saying, you are the field. You are God's building. And regarding the field, he had been a planter, 
right? Regarding the building, he's laid a foundation. So, so the thing that was planted and the thing that had the foundation laid was actually the church at Corinth. And that's confirmed by verses 16 and 17. I don't read those, but look at what he says there. Do you not know that you, and again, it's second person plural. Uh, I'm not a Southerner, but let me just put it this way. You all are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you all or among you all. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you all are. Okay, so he, he says in 4.9, you're a field, you're a building. In 16, you're the temple. So when he talks about in verse 10, I laid a foundation. He's not talking about some like disconnected idea. So the foundation of my life, right? I laid the foundation of my life and now I'm building on it and I better build a certain way. He's talking about the foundation laid is the church of Christ at Corinth. That, that ministry, and, and that's where everything flows out of this, is building on that foundation. If I could put it, I'd set it this way, it's church-focused. It's built on the congregation of God's people. It's primarily, I think, then aimed at the leaders, but his language clearly extends it out, right? It's, it's uh, someone's building on top of it in verse 10, but then verse, uh, right, verse 10 at the end, each man or each one, verse 11, no one, verse 12, if anyone, 13, each one, 14, each one, and all of those I think are legitimately translated one because that's the language he uses in Greek. I don't think it's a problem that it's translated man because he uses the masculine pronoun when he says he should do such and such, right? But it's, it's intended to communicate that, that the primary focus is actually people who are leading the church, but everybody is a part of building the church. The reason I'd say that is because the scriptures do, right? Ephesians chapter four, verse 12 says that saints are to be equipped for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And chapter four, 16 talks about each part supplying that so that the body can be built up. In first Peter chapter two, Peter describes believers in with this language. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter is talking to all believers at that point. He's not talking to, to some subset of believers. He says, you, the readers of this letter are living stones in a temple that's being built, a house that's being built or raised up so that they can offer up spiritual sacrifices as a holy priesthood. So every believer, right, everyone who truly knows Christ and is a part of the body of Christ is actually a priest offering up spiritual sacrifices. Every believer has been given abilities by which they might serve Christ in the temple of God, like verse 16 and 17 talks about. We're a dwelling place for God by his spirit. We are the temple of God. And all of us have priestly responsibilities and roles to fulfill. We've been given some task connected to the grace that God's given us that we are to use in offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now that's, that's radically different than the Old Testament. Right? Unless you were of the right tribe, 
and even the right family within that tribe, you would not have been able to go in to the inner workings of the temple and fulfill any kind of priestly service. That was designated for the house of Aaron, the tribe of, tribe of Levi, house of Aaron, right? You, you, you had other Levites that had responsibilities, but the average Jewish follower of Yahweh was always at the outside watching the service of the temple happen. You come to the New Testament and Peter's saying, Paul's saying, Peter's saying, right? You are actually the temple. You are living stones. You are a priesthood that's offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's everybody. Right? So every believer is a part of this construction project. And it's not to say that there's not things outside of this construction project that matter. They certainly do. Right? You, if you're here today and you have uh, a job, you actually should be fulfilling that job as a part of your obedience to the second great commandment. Right? First is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second is love your neighbor as yourself. So something about your work has an impact on your neighbor. Right? If you're just screwing a bolt into a, a piece of a chassis, your doing it should be done in a way that glorifies God and demonstrates love for your neighbor. That is, you want to love them like you love yourself. And you know what? You would not want to get a badly screwed in bolt to your chassis of your car, would you? So if you can do junk for everybody else, but you don't want junk, you're not loving your neighbor like you love yourself. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's true. It's reality. So we ought to go to work in a way that honors God and loves our neighbor. Absolutely. And there's real value in that. That is eternally significant because it reflects your relationship to God and your obedience to his commands. But also, if you know Christ, then you have been given a role to play in the building up of Christ's temple, the house. You have some part to contribute to it. And, and this passage is saying, when you think about it, it, it comes from God's grace. It must be controlled by the wisdom of his word. And it needs to be focused on the thing that Christ is building, his church. Right? It's not, there's, we, we just live in a world that has so flattened out, and I'm putting it in air quotes, ministry, that it basically is just doing anything for Jesus anywhere you want. When in fact, what Jesus is doing is building his church and saints are to be equipped for the building up of the body of Christ. They're supposed to be supplying that which is every joint to the health of the body. It's not Lone Ranger, ride across the sunset, find some good thing to do for Jesus. It's actually be engaged with the bride that Christ loves so much that he gave himself up for her. His heart is for the church. And our heart has to be that. It needs to be focused in that way. But notice also, and I, I'm not completely comfortable with the way I'm going to try and frame this, so I'm going to show you in the text, I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to explain it really fast, all right? I couldn't come up with a good way to say it. Notice it says, and another is building on it. Okay, another is building on it. So here's, here's the way I'm stating it, and I want to clarify it. So reality of ministry is it's grace-based, wisdom-directed, church-focused, and it is open-ended. And here's what I mean. Paul said, I did my job 
Now there's other people doing the job. And in fact, the work, the work is never going to be complete until Jesus returns. Right? It's, it's not something that's finished by any of us. Because it's never done until Jesus says it's done. Right? It started when he left for heaven and it'll end when he comes back from heaven. And in between there is just this constant marathon that's actually like a relay race. We get the baton handed to us from someone before us. We run out our portion of the race and we handed the baton on to somebody else. Right? Paul says, I laid a foundation another is building on. It's always open-ended until Jesus comes back. And that's, that's, I think, really important to get, right? Because the mindset sometimes is that we're just going to do what works today and not worry about tomorrow. And, and that's why sometimes, in fact, uh, at some point, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a pessimist, right? So I, when I was younger, I used to hear this, uh, um, even from people I respected a lot, but they'd say, you know, uh, ministries never, never outlast one or two generations. Right? Cause I mean, honestly, you, you look around. I mean, you can think of some huge and notable examples of that, right? That, that they, uh, they start well and eventually surrender at some point to the compromises around them. I mean, Harvard's been in the news a lot, right? It started to train people for ministry. Princeton had the most dominant Orthodox seminary in the nation for, for decades. No one would think orthodoxy with Princeton Seminary at all. Uh, you can drive town. You know, I, I was just downtown, and uh, you can you can cut right past a church that actually shows up in the history of the the student volunteer movement as a hub of a place that was launching out people to the mission field right down on Fourth Street. Doesn't even believe the gospel anymore. Right now, here's what I'd say to you is that the pro part of the problem is, is the Corinthian problem. What are we going to do to fit into the culture around us? How are we going to make the gospel more palatable, more attractive? How are we going to minister in a way that, that reaches our generation? Right? It sounds good. But here's the problem is you just got to think about it this way. All right. So you tailor everything to today starts the process toward when things are a little more sideways, we make another trajectory shift and we keep accommodating to the world around us until eventually we're exactly like the world rather than controlled by the word. Because the, 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 the reality of it is, is that the assessment of our, and we're going to see this in the text, the assessment of our ministry isn't today. Right? It talks about the day will reveal. Right? So, so what can happen is, Right? You, you have a foundation that's right. And then there's an adjustment to the, the culture or mindset or winds that are blowing, like Ephesians 4 talks about. And you know what often happens? It looks successful. Right? Cause having a church that's not your grandma's church attracts a lot of people who didn't like grandma's church. So they, they all show up and it looks successful. 
And you know what? When something in America looks successful, we want more of it. Because we love that. But we started the trajectory away from the truth. We, 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 we haven't thought about what are the downstream ramifications of the compromises that we're making right now? I mean, what, what are the consequences of these ideas? Right? It's some, sometimes really subtle, right? You have big moral issues being debated and, and there's like a, a radical divide between the morality of scripture and the morality that's in the culture. And people go, well, we've got to be able to reach them. So let's talk on their terms. So we accept designations that are completely unbiblical in order to have that conversation. And then all of a sudden, Christians start talking as if those are legitimate designations and that Christians can actually be this. Do you see how subtly the shift happened because someone had good intentions, but they didn't realize, right, that the foundation was laid. We're building a floor in the window that God gave us. But you know what? When we're done with our floor, the building's not done. And someone's going to come along and build on another floor. And then another floor. And all of a sudden, the whole thing's going to collapse because we didn't build it the way God said to build it. It looked great. We walked around our floor and thought, wow, this is beautiful. This is attractive. This is wonderful. Look how successful it is. And then all of a sudden, the weight drops down on the generation after us or two generations later because we sold out the truth, right? We have to realize that the long-term look has got to control what you're doing. The choices you make in serving Christ today have profound ramifications for the future. And subtle trajectories result in radically different destinations. That's just the reality of it, right? You go off, off course a slight little bit at the start, you're going to end up in a radically different place. And so reality of ministry is that you have to have a bigger, longer perspective than just the immediate horizon of what you're doing. Okay, that's the reality of it in verse 10. So look at the end of verse 10 and verse 11, because here's the, the sort of summary of the responsibility that drives the whole passage, right? But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, so here's the, I'm going to use two words to try and capture the responsibility, which is, this one's pretty easy because it says, must be careful. So we must build carefully, right? That, that this is really the central point of the passage. If I were, if I were going to say, what, what's the topic of this passage, right? It, it would be something like, why must we build carefully? Right, because that's that's what he's answering all the way through it. We must build carefully because of these reasons, right? So, so that's really the central thing he's concerned about is that we understand how important it is to build carefully, and and so we need to recognize that when Paul raises a distinction, it's implied here, right? Each one must be careful how he builds on it. That necessarily implies that you could actually be building uncarefully, right? I mean, if, if careless building was not actually even a possibility, then Paul would be just wasting his words to say, be careful. 
So there actually is a kind of building that is careless and not appropriate and therefore not acceptable to God because he wants us to build in a certain way. And we, uh, I think we, we moderns <laughs> need to hear that because we have allowed a, an unhealthy imbalance between motives and manner. Right? When he says, be careful how you build it, he's talking about the way in which they would build. That's what I'm calling manner. But we live in a day that has taken both heart, right? If I could put it this way, heart and the manner and, and has tilted the, the teeter totter down to the heart side. So much so. Well, if your heart's right, then it, it I mean, it really doesn't matter how you build it. Because, you know, God God will be pleased. He knows you love him. He knows what your intention was. He knows you wanted to do good. So that's really the thing that matters. And I would say it definitely matters. But not so much that it actually overthrows the other side of the, the balance beam. Because the reality of it is, is that we have to follow God's instructions, right? Having a good motive doesn't make everything else right because it pulls apart two things that cannot be separated. My heart and my obedience. Those two can't be separated. They're supposed to be joined together. But it not only pulls them apart, it actually sort of reverses the order by which I'd be able to properly assess them. Because here's what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? So what was going to be the test of their love for him? Whether they kept his commandments. Right? Cause true love would be issuing forth in obedience. And if they're, if they're living a life of disobedience, it calls into question the sincerity or genuineness of their love. And again, I'm saying our culture has total, you know, that's not who I am. I just want you to know that that's not who I am. Right? I just did this horrific thing, but that's not who I am as if there's some kind of isolation between our heart and what proceeds out of it when Jesus actually said, it's out of the heart that wickedness flows, right? The fruit of my heart is the revelation of my heart. And, and so I can't, I can't separate them. I can't actually go, well, this side doesn't matter. We just need to look at it through this side because we actually are terribly self-deceived at times about our own heart. I mean, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's what, that's what Jeremiah says. But you don't even have to go all the way to Jeremiah. Look down to verse or chapter 4. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined or judged by you or by any human court, In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. So Paul wants to have a good conscience, and a few times in the New Testament, he talks about his good conscience, but at the end of the day, he goes, my conscience isn't the judge. God examines me because he knows that you can actually be wrong in your conscience and still feel good about it. Do you know when he was persecuting people, he says he was doing it with a good conscience because he thought they were blaspheming God. So he was going after them, but he was fundamentally wrong in his judgment. Right. So here's the thing we've got to recognize, right? We, we cannot allow ourselves to 
to drift into this fuzzy land of going, well, if your heart's right, nothing else really matters about it. No, here's what I'd say. Your heart should be right. (laughs) And if your heart's right, you'll want to find out what God wants you to do, and you'll do what God wants you to do. And sometimes the best test for your heart is when the thing you might want to do, actually the word says you can't do, and so you don't do it. Because then you find out which you love more, you or God. Or when the Bible tells you to do something that you don't really want to do because you're struggling with it, but you do it anyway because that action you might not want to do, but love for God you do want to do, so you're going to do the hard right thing. right? Because then that is, is showing that your heart treasures Christ above anything else. And we, I think... I fear at times right, that, that the lack of repentance and the emphasis on repentance in our Christian culture is because we assume that God's good with whatever we want to do. Right? I mean, we don't feel conviction because we've just assumed that what we're doing is okay because God's good with it. We've lost any kind of standard that says, no, here's what God says, right? So so when you think serving Christ, you have to think, I need to do this carefully from the perspective of the one who's going to be the building inspector, right? Not, Not the construction worker. There's going to be a building inspector. So... You build with an eye to that inspection, right? So carefully. Second, look at verse 11, is, and I'm going to use the word consistency or continuity because he immediately goes back to the foundation. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so it almost could seem like it's coming out of nowhere, but it's Paul, I think, pulling in chapters 1, 2, and the first part of 3 to say, so when you're building... There's the foundation, Christ and him crucified. And so everything that you build needs to be in continuity with that, right? You build consistent with the foundation. Anything that diverges from that foundation, either in content or spirit or output is is flawed, right? It's Christ who's the foundation, and everything should be built consistently with him. The gospel of Christ must have active functional control over the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, and it, I, let me give you an example. So I, I, I have this, I, I blew by it. I'm going to come back to it, right? Here's, here's a quote from a book about ministry. Quote, the church is a business. It is involved in the business of ministry. As such, the local church must be run with the same wisdom and savvy that characterizes any for-profit business. Our goal as a church, like any secular business, is to turn a profit. For us, however, profit means saving souls and nurturing believers. So there's the, like, how can I pull this, how can I pull this nonsense out of the pit? Saving souls and nurturing believers. All right, but, but here's the thing, here's the thing I'd say. Uh, if I go to the Bible and I say, what kind of images are used of the script of the church? It's a body, it's a bride, it's a building. I don't think I see anywhere. It's a business. That's not an image that the scriptures use. So that means it's an image being drawn from outside of the Bible to press down on the way we think about the church and therefore opens up avenues for wisdom and savvy that are from a different kind of operation to be drawn in to the control the way we think about the church. 
right? That's, that's what this passage, I think, would be saying. No! No, the minute you start to think of this thing that Jesus purchased with his blood and is built on him, the foundation, you start to think about it like any other entity or enterprise. You are fundamentally going to influence the shape and direction and mindset of it. That's, that's, that's what's going on. It's got to be consistent with the gospel of Christ. So then in verses 12 through 14, he tells us the reasons, and they're really pretty simple. So I think we can just sort of press them home and maybe come back to them. But I want us to see them. The reasons, first of all, are that not all materials are equal, verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Right, so he lists these materials and he's trying to show us that they're not of the same stuff. Now, there's some debate about why he chooses these. I, I don't think it's that complex, right? We, but we tend to go like this. We, we tend to go, well, gold, silver, and precious stones are worth more than wood, hay, and stubble. But I don't think that's the point because the next verses, he's going to talk about things going into the fire. So he's talking about is what will pass the fire test or not? Gold will be refined, wood will be consumed, right? Silver will not be consumed by the fire. Straw will. So you build with things that have permanent value in light of eternity, right? You choose the things that are going to actually be valuable in eternity because they have lasting significance. In fact, he emphasizes, look at, look at in verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on remains, or in verse 15, it's burned up. That's the point of these things. So there's not there's not, uh, there is, not all materials are equal. So you, you have to make choices, discerning choices. So, so uh, building a church by God's wisdom in the cross is gold. Building it with a message that's philosophically attractive to the Greeks is wood, hay, and stubble. Framing your gospel in a way that at the end of it, the only person can boast is boast in the Lord. That's gold, silver, and precious stones. Anyone that has them left with some boast of their own, you know, I, I, I got this because I'm smarter. I got this because I'm more righteous. That's wood, hay, and stubble. Any ministry built on the eloquence and, and skills and giftedness of a speaker versus the power of the spirit through the cross, right? If it's built around a human man's eloquence, it's wood, straw, burned up. If it's built on nothing but Christ and him crucified in the demonstration of the power of the spirit, gold, silver, precious stones. If it's built by strife and jealousy, because that happens a lot, right? I mean, oh, we're the only true this, and these people are that. And so you you have people, I mean, there there was, uh, so this is third hand, so I'm just telling you that, right? So Lesola would be the third hand to me. A guy we both knew was involved in meetings with seeker churches that they were going to plant. And when they did, they put a map up around it, and they called it the killing fields because they knew that there were going to be a ton of churches that would go out of business because they were going to plant this gigantic seeker church. They were going to run the franchise so well that it drew all the dissatisfied people out of their churches and into their church so they could launch with 500 or 1,000 on a Sunday and then let stuff fall away at that point, right? You know what that, that looks like? That looks like to us gold, silver, and precious stones. 
You know what's going to look at the Bema Sea? A puff of smoke. And that's why a lot of those churches, one generation later, are imploding or abandoning the gospel because they looked great, but then the product had to keep getting shifted to keep up with the appetites of the consumer until eventually they made choices like, well, you know, if, if we don't have women pastors, people will think that we're somehow out of date and immoral. So we need to start having some women pastors or else we're not gonna reach our culture. If we take a hard stand on this biblical moral issue, people will think we're bigoted or judgmental. So we need to soften that up a little bit so we can reach our culture. And, and all of a sudden it's just whoosh, gone. I looked good, but it didn't last. Not all materials are equal. And verse 13, not all appearances are real. Look at verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. All right, so notice the language, will become evident. The day will show it. It is to be revealed. That means that it might not, what you're seeing right now might not be the true assessment of it. It might look like it's good. It might look like it's successful. But there's coming a day when it will be tested and then the true quality will be evident. The true quality will show itself. Then it will be revealed. All right, so, so here's the, the point Paul's making is not all appearances are actually real. The present assessments are not the final assessments. Apparent success does not necessarily mean eternal success, right? It's possible to look successful now and be a failure at the test. And, and that's, that's the Corinthians have to come to grips with that and we do as well. They had lost sight of what really mattered was the assessment of God. They wanted the approval of people around them. They, they wanted something that had to do with their present success. And how can we get that? So they were willing to make compromise about it. And we, we have to recognize, I would say this as Americans, particularly, right? that we are susceptible to this Corinthian cancer, right? We, we are susceptible because we love instant success, meteoric growth, the next big wave, right? That's, that's, that's been streamed into our blood for decades. And we, we have to recognize how much that could carry over into our view of Christ building of his church and, and recognize the danger of it. So that means we need to be careful about knee-jerk assessments of success or the lack of it. Because chapter four is gonna say it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And our tendency sometimes be, well, we see something that is succeeding, and so we immediately conclude that that's the blessing of God on it. Or we see something maybe struggling, and we go, well, they just don't have God's blessing on them. And the reality of it is, we do not have the, the capability to make that assessment. And what we have to understand is the history of the devil's operations among God's people is to take and corrupt the things that are going well in order to sow seeds. You can find this, read the parables of Christ. I mean, Jonathan Edwards in, in the Great Awakening uh, was seeing people do these two, these knee-jerk assessments, right? They saw what was happening and they were ready to embrace every part of it. Look at what God's doing. 
And then the other people are looking at the weird, bizarre, wrong things and going, God is not in it at all. Right? They were, they were jumping to conclusions instead of Edwards was writing. The test for all of this is the word of God. What does the God, the God who rules us, what does he say about what we should think? So that because sometimes there's a genuine movement of God and the devil sprinkles in counterfeits. Remember Paul saying, be worried about people who preach a Jesus that isn't the Jesus that we preached you or a spirit that isn't the spirit that we had, right? He said, there's going to be counterfeits that come in. That's, that's the devil's game plan. It has always been the devil's game plan. So if we just naively go, oh, look what's happening. This must be success. You can, you can get hooked right in, right? Or sometimes you have a Judson who goes and pounds it out year after year after year, translating the word of God, proclaiming the scriptures before anyone comes to Christ. You know, we tend to do, man, you've been there six years. What's wrong with you? There must be some sin in your life. Or you need to get with the program. Because we have such a short window, right? We know we don't see the heart well enough and we don't see the future well enough to be drawing the kinds of assessments. Paul's saying, listen, not everything that looks good turns out to be good. The test isn't apparent success. It's will it pass the fire test? And the only way you'll know that is if you're operating according to the instructions that Christ has given you and leaving the outcomes with him. And this is the sobering part. Look at verses 14 and 15. If any man's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. The reason we should build carefully is because not all materials are equal, not all appearances are real, and not all service is rewarded. I mean, look at, look at verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. This is, uh, I say sobering, because right at the end of the day, uh, a person could appear to be successful, have the accolades of the crowds, be hailed as some wonderful servant of Christ. And if they've built with shabby materials in a way that isn't according to God's plan, they will get no reward for it. Right? Let that sink in. Because lots of times we want to pass the judgment. And, and here's what I'd say is, and, and we're all prone to this, myself included, right? We're all prone to pick the people that agree with us and pass our validation of them Look at how God's using this. See, this is the way to go. But can, can you understand that's what's going on at Corinth? Look at, look at what's happening if we do this. I'm of. I'm of. And it's not really, it's not really as neutral as we like to think because our hearts are not as neutral as we like to think. Right? I mean, I, it's, it's easy for me to criticize people I disagree with. Right? What this text would be saying is my agreement or disagreement isn't the ultimate arbiter of it all. There's coming a day when every one of us, the work which we've done for him, will face the test. And it will be revealed whether it was gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble. And if it was gold, silver, and precious stones, then there's going to be a reward. 
Okay? And it, it really won't matter. It really will not matter what everybody else thought at that point. Right? It, 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 it won't matter how big your name was, how impressed everybody was with you, how you whatever. The only thing that's going to matter is, does the material you were using pass the fire test? That's the only thing that matters. And, and w- what a shame, what a shame it would be for people to be hooked on the drug of human approval so much that they squander what really matters. Right? They, they want people's approval so much that they'll tailor to the audience instead of the assessor. Right? And, and we need to recognize that. Now, be clear in this passage that it's not about salvation because notice he says he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire. With that, think like this. Here's a good image for it. Your house is on fire and you're running out. And basically everything that you did is left behind. Right? You're saved, but it's like you're running through the flames and everything that you've invested all of your money, time, energy in just got burned up. That's what, that's, that's the picture he's saying. You're, you're coming to the judgment seat of Christ and you're not being judged as a sinner, but as a servant. And he's going to assess your service. And if you've been doing it according to man's wisdom for self-glory, then it's all going to be burned up. You'll be saved. But you're the only thing that's going to pass through the fire. Everything else is toast. Right? And that's, that's a pretty sobering picture. Right? That's why, I mean, I, I'll say it periodically, and I don't mean in cavalier way at all, but, man, that's the only thing that matters to me. Right? I, I mean, I've, I've had to, you know, withdraw from things or say no to or stand up against or uh, make decisions that aren't always popular. And, and at the end of the day, I have no desire to tick people off. But I do know that when I get to that judgment, it will not matter what anybody else thought. And it would be no consolation to me to have won the approval of people and watch a life of service go up in smoke. That would be utterly stupid, right? And so in our heart, We have to be anchored to the fact that the thing that matters is what Jesus wants because this powerfully reinforces our role as servants and our stewardship as a responsibility. This is a a life-changing text. There's only one foundation, it's Christ. I hope today your life is on that foundation, that you've realized you have nothing to offer Jesus other than your sin from which he can save you. You have nothing to say, hey, I'm acceptable. We're sinners. The only part of the equation that we bring to salvation is the sin from which we must be saved. Christ is the Savior. If you've not acknowledged that sin and repented and trusted in Christ alone, then this text is is really like, it's for something out in front of you. It's not the issue for you because you're not serving Christ if you're not built on the foundation. If you don't know him, you're not his servant. Right? So, so let, me, let me just urge you to make certain that your feet are firmly planted on Christ and Christ alone. He is the answer, the sure and steady anchor we sang about. And if you are, do you view every aspect of your service in the congregation as a part of building on the foundation of Christ? Right? Do you, 
as you go about whatever task it is that you have to do within the congregation of God's people, do you have an awareness that you can't be straddling the foundation and, and human wisdom? That what you're doing has to be firmly planted on the foundation of Christ and him crucified. Do you realize that everything you do should be done with an eye toward the pleasure of the master? So you're making choices of gold, silver, and precious stones because at some point we're all going to give an account and it would be a waste, a waste of your life to use the other stuff, right? And, and, and to do it for man's reward. I mean, Jesus was really clear. If you do it to be seen of people, you have your reward in full. Right? If, if what matters to you is the short-term reward of approval from people, let me plead with you. Lift up your eyes. I mean, Jesus is going to be the one who receives you. Don't you want to see the smile on his face? That he says, well done, well done. That's what should motivate us, is that Christ, Christ deserves the very best we can give him. Not the most convenient, not the most comfortable, not the most acceptable. What will honor Christ, our Lord? And do we build our lives on that? Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you that you have given us the privilege here to stand on the foundation of Christ and also above floors that have been built by generations in front of us. The fact that the work is still here, it's still sustained by the truth, is a tribute to their faithfulness. And we praise you for working among your people in that way. And Lord, there are generations coming after us. The choices of which uh, we make now will have an enormous influence on the work that's left to them. So Lord, help us to be committed, so committed to Christ that we'll make the hard right choices not just in the big picture, but all the way down to the very nuts and bolts of how we function as a church. The person who serves uh, far out of the spotlight is looking toward the day when they'll see Jesus. From the smallest, what seems to be the smallest task in our church to the greatest task that we would build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Because we want, we want to see Christ and receive the reward that he promises to those who trust him. So help us to have our confidence in that. Lord, be working among us, bringing people to Christ, building up your people. May we rise up to this task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.